Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. While continuing our series in Confident Faith, let's look in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 18, verses 17 to 33, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, God's Justice Among the Nations. God is right now at work in the nations of the world. That's because God is the king. For his own purpose, God has, in the present era, allowed the nations to walk in disobedience. But that should not give us the idea that the battle between good and evil is an equal fight. You see, Christianity is not dualism. There are not two rulers of this earth. There is but one. And whatever Satan does, he does only so far as God, in his great wisdom, permits him to do. And all that to say that God is right now ruling the nations, exercising his plans and purposes in every part of the earth. Sometimes he lets the nations go their way to demonstrate what it is to forget him. Sometimes he has mercy on them to demonstrate his mercy. And sometimes he judges them by destroying them to demonstrate his righteousness. So I'm reading Genesis chapter 18, verses 17 to 21. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Look again at verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. You'll notice the two words here first word is righteousness. It was Bruce Waltke who said, righteousness portrays a way of living in community that promotes the life of all its members, a life promoting social order in recognition of God's rule. In other words, Abraham's children are to be a community that demonstrates how God wanted the nations to live. The life of Abraham's children was to be a witness to the nations. That's what's behind the word righteousness. The second word is the word justice. Justice is about how the community responds when God's rule has been violated. Justice is putting things right after a wrong has been committed. And God intends his people to demonstrate righteousness and justice in our communal living. And this communicates to the whole world how to live. You know, you want to contrast verse 9 to chapter 19. In Sodom and Gomorrah, you find the opposite of what God had intended. You'll find two things wrong in Sodom. The first is that community has been destroyed. Violence and sexual immorality are rampant. No one cares for or loves their neighbor. And second, for those who are wounded by their living in Sodom and Gomorrah, they can expect no recourse. There is no justice. Now, I can't help at this time to pause for just a moment. God's plan for the world is not just to save individuals, but also to create a fellowship of people. I mean, that's what the church is. The church is community. And when we live in righteousness and justice, we testify to the nations. Yes, to the nations. 
what it is that God requires and how it is that God blesses a people. I mean, the worst thing that can happen to the world is for the church to stop being the church. If we no longer live in community under his rule, we fail not only Christ, but we've also failed the world. When there is sexual scandal in the church, when the church wounds and hurts her own, the message to the nations is then blunted. If the nations have no prophetic example of what is meant by righteousness and justice, what shall become of the nations? You know, if in the time of Abraham, his family were no longer to observe the principles of righteousness and justice, what should become of the nations? I recently received a letter from a man who told me his major goal in life was transforming the political structure and had very little time for the church. Well, I was saddened. So let me put it plainly. Once in a while, someone says, look, I'm too busy to be very involved in the church. And whenever we say that, we've told our world, I have no time to bless you. World, you'll just have to be content to live under judgment and condemnation because I'm busy. See, the only hope for Canada is a vibrant and healthy and spirit-filled, Jesus-loving, people-serving, motivated to sacrifice our lives for each other, church. It's the crying need of this country. It's this country's only hope. There's no more pressing need than that. That's God's intention toward the nation, to give every nation churches that testify to the amazing love of God and so pour out a blessing on their culture. Now then, as we read through Genesis 18, we can, however, see that that God has revealed the final outcome of sinful human culture. And this now brings Abraham to the point of crisis. While he knows that he and his family after him are to be the conduit of blessing to the world, we also know that the world is racing for a date with destiny, a date with the judgment of God. Why? Because for one, sin cries out to God for justice. So I'm reading Genesis 18, 20 to 21. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, at first glance, that makes it sound as if God simply doesn't know how bad the situation in Sodom and Gomorrah has become, but that he's heard only bad rumors about it. But as I said yesterday, what we have here is anthropomorphic language. That is, the text is using very human-sounding language so that we'll not get the idea that when God brings justice to a city, that he's not done his homework. God never simply reacts. He always acts out of a very thorough knowledge of the specifics. Understand that God's knowledge of all things is exhaustive knowledge. He doesn't have to investigate anything. He already knows everything completely. No fact is outside of his gaze. But by stating things this way, God wants to communicate that matter to Abraham because, as we will see, Abraham wonders whether God is acting justly. It means that God is not simply going to destroy an entire group of people without knowing the heart and the actions and the attitudes of every single human being. After all, he is just. That means that God's final action when he eventually condemns Sodom and Gomorrah, that means that not one small action of God is not completely and thoroughly considered. God never encounters unexpected blowback. 
He never merely condemns without ensuring that every aspect of his condemnation is in complete conformity to the principles of his justice. And that's what the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is all about. And after all, all this knowledge is just a setup for Abraham's prayer. He knows that his nephew Lot lives in Sodom along with his wife and two daughters. And he's met the king of Jerusalem in the past, and that's Melchizedek. And this man was a priest of God most high. I mean, perhaps there are more righteous people than Abraham has ever considered. Abraham's heart is moved at the thought. He shudders over the day of judgment. So let's read verses 22 to 26. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now, I want to remind us here that that knowledge of the judgment of God simply must not make us rub our hands with glee. It ought to move us to tears. It should motivate our prayers. And by the way, that is the call to missions. When Hudson Taylor in the late 1700s heard about the great nation of China, he was determined that God had called him to bring the gospel there. That's the heart of a missionary. My own comfort doesn't matter. People must hear. They stand before the bar of God's judgment. See, at the heart of Abraham's prayer is both the call for mercy, but it's also the call for real justice. We might read this and wonder if Abraham is trying to lecture the judge of all the earth as as to what true justice really looks like. Is that what's going on? Would God actually have acted improperly had Abraham not interceded? And from that, do our prayers finally move God to do something that he would not do unless we reminded him? Well, there's so much to think about, but clearly God is the judge of all of the earth and he does do justice at every moment in time. Celebrate 60 years of Back to the Bible Canada in 2018. 60 years of ministry that took place because of your prayers and support. In celebration, we'll be announcing a number of events, activities, programs, firsts, and special resources. The first of those is our 60th anniversary series with founder Theodore Epp and Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld. I know you'll be impacted by the sound teaching and inspired by the heart of Theodore Epp for this ministry and the ongoing faithfulness to his original mission and vision. And as our gift to begin the celebrations, we want to send you this very special five-message series for free. Just ask. And for those who can remember 30, 40, 50 years of ministry ago, there may be also some special moments to stir your memory. So call for your copy or to make a ministry gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. You know, I've said it before, but I need to say it as often as I can so that it sinks in. 
all the language of this passage is anthropomorphic. God acts in justice, whether there is one person praying for it or not. God never acts unrighteously. He never needs us to remind him of anything. But why then do we pray? Why call out to God asking him to remember to be merciful? I mean, why does a parent pray for his or her child? Do we actually think that we as parents love our kids more than God does? Well, of course not. And all of this, however, puts things into human language so that we can understand the heart of God. See, Abraham prays to God not so that God might understand the true nature of the situation in Sodom. He already knows that. Abraham prays so that Abraham might understand. Uh, This is put in human terms so that we might understand. See, one thing is clear. God does not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And furthermore, God demands that we pray tenaciously for the nations so that we might understand him both in terms of his justice and his mercy. I want you to think about what happened next. Abraham begins by what I call his prayer. In fact, as a prayer, it's a curious thing. See, on the one hand, it has some fairly standard features in it. It has an acknowledgement of the greatness of God. He's the judge of the earth. He also acknowledges Abraham's own weaknesses. Uh, Abraham admits that he's dust and ashes. But what strikes us is the bargaining in it. Abraham becomes like a Near Eastern trader trying to discover God's price for Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, let's read the text. Genesis 18, 27 to 33. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, this passage has led some people to to foolishly say that whenever you can still have a certain percentage of righteous people in a city or believers in a country, God will not destroy it. But in fact, that is, I think, to misunderstand this prayer. Let me illustrate. About 1,400 years after Abraham, the prophet Habakkuk was living in Jerusalem at the time when God would send the Babylonian army to destroy Jerusalem because of her wickedness. See, Habakkuk is appalled just like Abraham, and he wants to know why God would do such a thing. First of all, it appears to him that while Jerusalem was indeed wicked, the people of Babylon are worse. He wonders how God, who is just and has pure eyes, can look at such a thing. God's answer is that he will judge Babylon in due time. Habakkuk's second question is much like Abraham's question. What will then happen to the righteous? And God's answer is straightforward. The just or the righteous, he says, will live by faith. But he doesn't say their presence will save the city. In fact, it's the prophet Jeremiah who tells the righteous to get out of the city and surrender to the Babylonians, and then they're going to be saved. 
Anyone who doesn't have faith, doesn't believe what God is saying through his prophet, is going to be left and slaughtered in the city. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel says the following, and I'm reading Ezekiel 14, 12 to 14. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful, and I stretch out my hand against it and cut off its food supply and send famine upon it and kill its men and their animals, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could only save themselves by their righteousness, declares the sovereign Lord. So then, if that's the case, I mean, what do we make of Abraham's prayer? Well, let's put it in context. First of all, even while Abraham is bargaining with God, God is not bargaining with Abraham. I mean, think of it this way. Let's say you go to a garage sale and see a gorgeous painting there. No price is attached. So you say to the owner, see, I'll give you 50 bucks for the painting. And he says, okay. But you say to him, well, what if I give you 45? Will you not close the deal for the sake of five bucks? And the owner says, well, you can have it for 45. And you say, well, how about $40? And he says, fine. You say, well, how about $30? And he says, it's a deal. And you say, well, how about 20 bucks? And then how about 10? And each time the owner agrees. And after you take it home for $10, you might say to yourself, well, I wonder if I got the right price. I mean, maybe he was just giving the painting away. You simply don't know. Abraham learned absolutely nothing about what percentage of righteous people it takes to save a city. Well, what did he learn then? And what he learned, well, that'll tell us how to pray tenaciously for the nations. So first, Abraham learned that God's heart and passion must be our guide when we pray. See, when Abraham prayed, will not the judge of the earth do what is right? He learned something about God. God will not treat the righteous and the wicked alike. For those who are universalists, that is for those who believe that everyone is going to be saved in the end, well, this is extremely bad news. God is determined to treat the righteous and the wicked differently. He will treat Billy Graham differently than he treats Adolf Hitler. But please understand the intent of verse 25. The one who treats people differently on the day of judgment is, in fact, the one who is the judge of the earth. It is no good placing our standards of justice onto God and then saying, but that's not right. God will do the right thing, but that right thing is in keeping with his glory and his righteousness and his word. I know all manner of people who have used verse 25 to assure themselves of all manner of things that are not in keeping with perfect righteousness. And having said that, do you sense the passion of God? God's heart and passion are in preserving for himself a people. His heart and passion are set onto those who love him and walk according to his ways. He's made no agreement with the wicked, with those who ignore him. You know, we might pray that God would bring the wicked to repentance, but we cannot pray that God would simply be tolerant of or overlook the sins of the wicked. See, that will not do. When we pray, we must understand the heart of God. And so when we pray, we need to pray, yes, for mercy on the wicked, but this prayer teaches us to pray and plead with God on behalf of the righteous who live in the country. So you're going to notice that Abraham did not plead on behalf of the wicked. He prayed for the righteous, that the righteous would be spared judgment. And God promised him that, that he would spare the city on behalf of not the wicked, but on behalf of the righteous. But listen, this is not a general rule. See, as we've seen, sometimes he spares the city and sometimes he removes the righteous. 
but the object of God's affection is on his people. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love the wicked. He loves them enough that he sent his son to die for them on the cross. He loves them enough that he sends a believing church into their community to be priests interceding on their behalf. He loves them enough that he raises up missionaries to preach the gospel to places where, where the good news of Jesus has never been heard before. And that's why we must plead with God on behalf of his people. Because if the righteous are taken away, nothing but judgment is left. And if the righteous stop being righteous, stop being salt and light, well, what then? I mean, what if the divorce rates in the church are the same as in the world? What if our community is as broken as the world? What if our sexual morals are the same as the world? What if we become like Lot, living in Sodom, vexed by the horrible nature of his culture, but unable to make any influence and slowly being eroded by our culture? I mean, how horrible. All that then awaits is judgment. I believe God has called us to plead for the righteous. I also believe this passage is a call that everyone who prays must ask to understand the mindset of God. We should be praying for the nations. But how should we pray when we pray for the world? I believe that God has called us to be priests praying for nations. But how should we be specific? See, when we understand the mind of God, we will understand the plan of God. The best way we can pray for any country, including our own, is to pray for the church first. The best way we can pray for the nations is to pray for believers there, to be strong, to be untainted by the world, to remain in covenant community and not give up the habit of meeting together, to read the word of God and to obey it, to be faithful in ministry and faithful in evangelism. Pray like that, for that understands the mind of God. Ephesians 6:18 Paul says, "Always keep on praying for all the saints." John, I thought I'd ask a real practical question today. You know, when we think about praying for the nations, are there tools out there that would help us do that? Yeah, thank you for asking that, Ben. There are a number of um of missions organizations that give us books and tools as to how we might pray effectively. I mean, one of those tools, I mean, will simply tell us about, you know, how much persecution is there going on in that country? And there are a whole bunch of other things. Um, and so, you know, you can look at various different missions organizations and they will they will produce books for the nations. And, and I would argue it, it becomes very helpful for us to have something like that on our desk and then just, uh, you know, begin to open it up and begin to ask the Lord to give you this heart of compassion, not just generally, but individually for different nations and get all the information that we can. Uh, so that would be my hint. Thanks so much, John, and remember to join us again next week for the continuation of our series, Confident Faith, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Truth and Life Today is Back to the Bible Canada's video Bible engagement program that speaks into the culture, current issues, questions of life and faith, and offers a biblical perspective. Recently, we've discussed topics like hell, biblical worship with guest Shane Weeb, issues of suffering and natural disasters, to name just a few. And in the days ahead, you'll watch as we consider the legalization of marijuana, the Christian in politics with guest and member of parliament Ed Fast, and the very current issue of religious freedom with Earl Phillips, executive director of Trinity Western University's proposed law school. 
and much more. So join us for Truth and Life today, every Monday online on Facebook, YouTube, the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app, and more. And discover the many back programs online as well. For more information or to support programs like Truth and Life today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.